The war in Ukraine, unfortunately, provides many examples showing that ancient practices can still be found in modern military activity. Could this include military or paramilitary forces turning on their own civilian government? Military coup d'etat is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 64 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, the Naval War College, and currently contract faculty for the Army War College. These podcasts introduce what I believe are enduring lessons of war, lessons for any citizen to use in fulfilling their role in our country's deliberations about war, peace, and everything in between. These podcasts are not monetized or sponsored, not even by you, the listeners. So if you'd like these episodes to continue, if you think these are worthwhile, then please don't hesitate to hit like and let me know. In episode 62, addressing why Russia uses the Wagner Group mercenaries, I mentioned that one of the possible risks associated with Moscow's use of Wagner is the potential that, like previous elite and ostensibly politically reliable mercenary forces, Wagner could be a threat to the Russian government. But what is the likelihood of that happening? Surely, you might say, such things are impossible in the modern European context. Unfortunately, like mercenaries themselves, ancient practice can still be found in modern military activity. Before I go on, I want to explain the long gap between episodes. This subject, military coup d'etat, was not among the subjects I thought of for what everyone should know about war. I only decided to address it because it's been a subject regarding Russia in the current war with Ukraine. As I began research, however, I came to believe that this is a subject that more people should be aware of. I had become a victim of my own ideological biases, believing that such use of military power was something rare and outside the general subject of war. War is the ultimate exercise of risk management. The army is the principal means of managing that risk. But the very existence of an army capable of winning a war also presents a risk to the state and to the people who created that army. To begin, what do I mean when I say coup d'etat, or more specifically, a military coup? For the purposes of these podcasts, I'm referring to an instance where the military action has led to a change in government outside of the normal political process. This could be Caesar's legions crossing the Rubicon and forcing the Senate to declare Julius Caesar dictator for life. It could be a case where a mercenary leader decides that he wants to run the government of the state that hired him. It could also be a coup initiated by civilian political leaders, but which depends on military action to be successful. In fact, a civilian-led coup almost always fails without such military support. Military coups do not always end with a military government. Often, the military action intends to replace a corrupt or ineffective government with a more acceptable civilian government when the political system is unable to do so. The framers of the Constitution of the United States of America were well aware of the dangers of a military coup. This was one reason why they insisted on a small standing army and an armed citizen militia. They were well aware that in what was recent history for them, Britain had experienced such a military coup in 1653 under Oliver Cromwell. Closer to home, in 1689, the Massachusetts militia arrested and deposed the British-installed governor. 
Other coups that almost certainly informed the framers may have included Sweden in 1722, Russia in 1762, and Denmark in 1789. Shortly after the Constitution was ratified came the most influential military coup of them all, when Napoleon Bonaparte seized control of France in 1799. This last coup had such world-shaking effect that to the present time various Russian governments refer to military threats to civilian government as Bonapartism. Since the end of World War II, we may tend to think of military coup d'etats as being endemic to post-colonial fragile states, and perhaps even limited to such regions. Sadly, such coups do seem endemic to the developing world. Africa has had five military coups in this decade alone, that is in the last three years, and the Institute for Security Studies identifies four more African countries with an imminent threat of coup. Since the end of World War II, there have been more than 200 coup or coup attempts in Africa. However, this only represents about half of the coup and coup attempts throughout the world in that same time. It may come as no surprise that Latin America comes in next with 146 coup and coup attempts. What may come as a surprise, however, is that Europe has seen its share with 18 coups, nine of which were successful. In fact, several NATO countries have had military coups. In 1958, a military re revolt brought Charles de Gaulle back to power, and a failed military coup in 1961 attempted to remove him from power. Greece experienced military coups in 1967, 1973, and 1974. In Portugal, a military coup in 1978 started its transition to democracy and the end of its colonial wars. Turkey experienced six coups or coup attempts, half of which were successful. Failed coup or coup plots in NATO countries include Italy in 1964 and Spain in 1978 and 1981. The former Soviet Union was not immune to military intervention. Military intervention was critical to establishing Khrushchev's power in 1953. In 1957, the military intervened to keep Khrushchev in power when the Politburo voted to replace him. In the post-Soviet era, a military coup in Russia in 1991 attempted to unseat Boris Yeltsin. In that same year, a coup in Georgia removed the civilian president from power, and a coup in Azerbaijan reinstalled the former Soviet-era leader of that republic. A military coup in Armenia was attempted, but failed, in 2021. But is a military-led coup d'etat a serious risk to Moscow today? To answer this, we should look at what typically leads to military coups and what's necessary for success. We might begin by asking if there are characteristic circumstances that make a military coup likely. In fact, there seems to be several. First and most importantly, there must be a crisis of confidence in the current government. Usually, this crisis of confidence would be politically driven. One example could be an increasingly autocratic regime which exploits rather than serves the people. However, it could also be economic in nature, where people no longer have the resources for basic needs, and perhaps even the military leaders are unable to care for their troops. It could be massive corruption seen to be undermining the basic functions of government. Or it could be military in nature, where interference by a civilian government in the conduct of an armed conflict is perceived as the cause of battlefield failure. The second criterion is the perceived inability of the normal political process to change things and restore confidence in the government. This could be a government suspending political processes or the perception that corruption is so endemic that nothing will change regardless or who of who or what party is elected. 
The third criterion is a military structure that is competent to carry out the coup. Edward Lutwak, in his book Coup d'etat, a handbook, wrote, The active phase of a coup is like a military operation, only more so. The military must have at least the competence to plan a successful operation to take control of the government and employ the resources necessary to carry out that operation. I think that half of all military coups fail because coup leaders fail to properly plan or oversee the execution of that very complex operation. Coups initiated by lower-ranking officers are more common, accounting for almost two-thirds of all coup attempts, but they also fail more than two-thirds of the time. Coups that are led by general officers, however, succeed in more than three-quarters of all attempts. But to even plan for a coup, there must be an ideology within the armed forces that such a course of action is acceptable. The ideology of the armed forces of the United States, for example, is such that a military coup is really unthinkable for our officers. The same is almost certainly true for the British Army. Oh, there might be temptation by some to think that such a course of action might actually be desirable, but to even say it out loud is unimaginable. This was the case for Germany during World War II. Although many German officers saw the need for a coup, most of them, the very idea that the military should remove the head of the state, no matter how much he might be loathed, was considered dishonorable, if not treasonous, and completely at odds with their honor as an officer. The fact that enough German officers were able to consider tyrannicide as not only feasible but necessary is another story for another time. In other countries and in other armed forces, however, the ideology of military intervention in the government is a very real option. In Turkey, up until the recent changes made by its current president, the authority of a military coup was actually in the Constitution. In some monarchies, the officer's oath is to the monarch and not to the elected assembly. Therefore, a military coup could be promoted as an affirmation of the values of the country against a corrupt or unconstitutional usurpation of power by the government. Finally, the ideology could prevail that the government had broken its covenant with the people and the armed forces, negating the armed forces' bonds of allegiance with that government. These criteria do not assure that a coup will happen or that it will be successful. Just that the conditions that could lead to a coup are present. Whether it will happen and if it will be successful are different but related questions. Clausewitz described war as a paradoxical trinity, a blind natural force of primordial violence, hatred, and enmity, the play and chance of probability where creative spirit is free to roam, and the element of subordination of these to policy, which represents reason. The first leg of this trinity, raw energy, is supposed to reside in the will of the people. They must have lost confidence in the government and be willing to change, but are frustrated by not being able to change it. The second leg is the military, the ultimate practitioners of risk management, playing for the ultimate stakes of a society. The third leg is usually the government, but in the case of a coup, it may be the ability to install a new government capable of restoring the confidence of the people. So, for a coup to be likely, given the loss of confidence and the inability to change policy, the potential coup plotters must have, as Clausewitz described it, the creative spirit that is free to roam, and consider that a coup is possible, desirable, and achievable. 
In U.S. military terms, a coup as a possible course of action must be feasible, acceptable, and suitable. So what criteria could military plotters use to indicate that a coup is achievable? First, given loss of confidence in military leaders who are able and willing to orchestrate a coup, the general population must be seen as supportive or at least irrelevant to the success of the coup. Since the end of the Second World War, about a third of popular uprisings finished with military intervention, either re-establishing government control or overthrowing the government. In most cases, however, the population is largely disengaged from elite power structures and are either unwilling or unable to take to the streets to oppose a coup. Next, there must be an assailable center of gravity, a point that, once secured, will facilitate control of the government and inhibit actions against the coup. This is more common in centralized authoritarian states than in federal systems or distributed democracies. If loyalists can effectively control the country from a remote location and rally loyalist troops and popular opposition from those remote locations, then the coup will probably fail. This center of gravity includes political leadership. Authoritarian government, which consolidates power in the hands of one person, presents the least amount of difficulty. Distributed power, with local political leaders being able to organize resistance, will be the most difficult. Examples of distributed government include the United States, with 50 state governments, each with their own well-armed and trained military forces. Switzerland, although a much smaller country, is similarly organized with self-governing cantons and militias. In both cases, the success of a coup would be doubtful or impossible. Another essential feature is a functioning bureaucracy and professional civil service. This may not be readily apparent, but it's essential to long-term success. Government must continue even when the head has been lopped off. A professional civil service is not dependent on the whims of the head of government, no matter who that is. As long as their paychecks keep coming in, it's likely that they'll keep working. Once the coup is initiated, coup leaders must convince all relevant parties that the coup is successful even before that success is assured. This is necessary for several reasons. First is that the coup must succeed with a minimum of bloodshed. Avoiding bloodshed is important to gain the support or at least maintain ambivalence of the population. The coup is possible because the government lost support of the people, where the people matter, or other ruling classes where they do not. Extensive bloodshed or battles, even if victorious for the plotters, would not help convince either the population or the political elite that the coup leaders are preferable to the existing government. Another reason is that combat between rebels and loyalists is, historically, unlikely to be successful. Coups rarely, if ever, start with the preponderance of the military or paramilitary forces being in on the plot. The more people who are in on the plot, the more likely it is will be discovered, and more likely that the coup plotters will find themselves on the gallows. Therefore, most of the military will be unaware of the coup, or at least the coup plot, and a majority may be neutral or in favor of the current government. Past successful coups involved less than 1% of the total military force. The key is to convince the rest of the armed forces, and then the police and the paramilitary, that the coup is already successful and that they should support the change in regime rather than resist. Achieving this requires several things. Most important, the coup must immediately seize and dominate the means of communications. In the last century, this meant radio stations, telegraph, and television. 
In many cases, the fight for these nodes is where most of the shooting took place. It's not enough, however, to merely seize control. The message has to be convincingly and coherently transmitted that the coup has occurred, that new leaders are in place, why this was necessary, and that this is a good thing for all concerned. In 1944, the German military failed to control the civilian radio stations. In 2016, although the Turkish coup attempt controlled radio and TV, their message was unclear and, according to some, unconvincing. In this century, controlling the means of communication is much more difficult. The Internet of Things makes complete control of information almost impossible. On the other hand, that global information environment also makes it easier to sow doubt and misinformation. In the current information environment, it's unlikely that one side will be able to silence the other. If the information operations of the coup can outdo the information from the loyalist side, at least enough to create doubt and convince a decisive number of military, paramilitary, and police to sit this out, that may be enough. Second, and just as important, the previous political leader and his or her expected successors must be arrested, isolated, or killed. The best way to avoid fighting or civil war is to assure that there is no leader of the previous regime for loyalists to rally around. In 1944, Hitler survived the bomb, and in 2016, the Turkish army neglected to arrest or capture President Erdogan. Finally, there has to be a plan for governing after taking over. Without that, the life of a coup can be measured in weeks or months until the coup leaders are themselves overthrown. This goes back to the importance of a professional civil service, which I mentioned earlier. Obviously, a successful coup takes a lot of planning. However, the more thorough the planning and coordination, the greater the chance of being discovered and the chance that the ideal moment for the coup will have passed. Timing is also very important. So, what does all of this mean for Russia and its current war with Ukraine? The first criterion for a coup is loss of confidence by the people in the government. Although there seems to be increasing discontent among the people, I leave it to Russia experts' opinion about whether that is or likely to reach a crisis level among the people or the military. For argument's sake, let's say that it's not there yet, but could be in the next year. Moscow itself presents an assailable center of gravity, as was proven in previous coup and coup attempts. The Russian government is also largely authoritarian, with most power emanating from Putin, who has developed a cult of personality. Finally, the population remains largely disengaged from national power. Next, does the ideology support a coup? That is, is the possibility of a military coup acceptable to the Russian officers and the people? Past military involvement in the political process, successfully in 1953 and 1957 and unsuccessfully in 1991, indicates that it's not inconceivable. Questions would be whether that ideology will be widespread among senior Russian military leaders or whether enough others could be brought along given the initial success of the coup. Another question is whether the Russian FSB can be kept in the dark during the planning process or whether the FSB can be co-opted into participating in the coup. During World War II, the German anti-Hitler plotters were able to get as far as they did because the Abwehr, that is the German military intelligence service, was part of the anti-Hitler plot and was able to use its position and influence to frustrate the SS. In enigmatic Russia, 
Is it possible that a similar game could be afoot between the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence, and the FSB? Then there is the question of the Wagner Group of mercenaries. As I said earlier, it only takes a small number of dedicated military leaders and units loyal to them to pull off a coup. Could a coup center on Wagner? Could Prigozhin or another Wagner leader convince the Russian oligarchs to support him in displacing Putin and ending the war? Could the leaders of a Wagner-centered group convince the rest of the army not to resist them? Now, this would require achieving meeting the criteria I mentioned earlier, that is, being able to seize the center of gravity, information dominance, and removing Putin as a rallying point. Currently, Wagner is operating far away from Russia's center of gravity in Moscow. Quickly securing that center of gravity and the ability to remove Putin is, therefore, unrealistic. On the other hand, St. Petersburg is the second city of Russia, and it would be quite possible to govern from there. Wagner's corporate headquarters and Prigozhin's Internet Research Agency are based in that city. Could a coup use St. Petersburg to dislocate Moscow as a center of gravity? I think that's possible, but very, very risky. The Internet Research Agency also offers a potential resource for manipulating information and achieving the information dominance necessary for success. Now, working against this is that Prigozhin is personally, and Wagner generally, seems to be loathed by the military elite. Even if successful in St. Petersburg, it's likely that the military will fight to maintain or reestablish loyalist control of the government or seize it for themselves. Finally, whatever power Prigozhin has comes from Putin with the cooperation of other Russian oligarchs. Going up against Putin without the committed support of those other oligarchs and the military would, I think, be suicidal. Wagner might, however, be used by Putin to forestall a military-led coup. For such events to be remotely plausible, the first precondition I described must be in place. There must be general discontent, enough so that coup plotters can count on no significant opposition to the coup. Currently, this does not exist. Although there is some discontent in Russia and although there are reports of disobedience within the Russian army, Putin remains in control of his government, the army, and the nodes of information within Russia. If that should change, however, then things could get very interesting. Once again, this podcast is not monetized or sponsored, so if you would like these episodes to continue, if you think that these are worthwhile, then please hit the like button and share the podcast. Please join me again in the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.